Of all the places I've spoken over the years, your church family is the most organized when it comes to a guest speaker. Right? Our church at Evergreen, we're pretty organized, but you are even more organized. I came here because it was supposed to be business casual, and I didn't wear a tie. And then I arrived here, and everybody had ties on. So Pastor Ben, uh, much to my, I, I had no knowledge of this, foreknowledge of this, he went home, and he got me a tie. And it matches really well, huh? I'm not sure if this tie is a gift or not. But I'll find out as i probably walking out of here with it. So, I mean, uh, Ben and, and Kyle, they're taking such good care, uh, care of my wife and I as we spend time with here today. Um, I'm sure that if, if I told him you know, I need new undergarments, he probably would have provided that too. Yes. All right. Well, one of the things I get asked a, a lot as I, wind, winded, as I wound down the ministry is, how did you last so long? So we were, I was pastor of Evergreen Baptist Church for 42 years. I started at age 29. And we had 20 years as Evergreen Los Angeles and then 22 years as Evergreen SGV as we hived the church because we got too large. So we just split the church up. We planted five or six churches. So a lot has happened in 42 years. And I was five years a youth pastor even before that. So how do you survive like 47 years of active ministry? And so this morning I thought I'd share with you some thoughts about how to manage your ministry so that you can survive and you can do well and give glory to God uh, over the course of your time in ministry. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about pastors and a little bit about uh, elders and leaders, but it's also a message to every believer. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He's giving practical admonitions, and in this particular set of verses, he's talking about the church and the leadership God provides for the church. And look at chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And those are what he's saying here. He provides certain leadership, like pastors and teachers and elders and deacons. But the purpose of appointing these leaders within the church is to equip the saints or to equip the membership, to equip Christians to do the work of ministry. You know, for the, uh, for the longest time, churches, even our church, felt like if you go into the hospital, a pastor has to visit, otherwise you really didn't get ministered to by the church. And so the, we try to change the thinking of our church family that, no, no, we are to equip people how to do hospital visitations so that any member can visit another member, and it's just like a pastor visiting them. And that's the thinking we wanted to, to in, in, indwell in the hearts and minds of our people. So I made this statement once, and it probably was not a good idea. I said, look, from this point forward, I'm not going to do a lot of hospital visitation. It's really up to the members to visit one another to do the work of ministry. And if I show up, it'd be probably because somebody's on their deathbed. So then I went and visited somebody that was, <laughs> and the moment I walked in, you should have seen their face like, <gasps> they thought they were going to die. And I said, no, 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 I'm, you're not, you're not going to die. I'm just visiting you. And so I thought, well, you got to be careful what you say from the pulpit. And so I had to make another announcement. Because I'm visiting you doesn't mean you're on your deathbed. All right. All right. So let me share with you some thoughts. I'm going to share with you just three this morning. I could go with like for hours regarding this. But three things that will help you manage your ministry, whether you be a leader, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, 
a youth worker, an usher, a choir member, a worship team member, whatever your ministry is, and especially if it involves leadership, let me share with you some thoughts about how to make it more manageable. All right, ministry and leadership becomes more manageable when we affirm our calling. When we affirm our calling. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 78. This is a description of a shepherd, David in mind. In verse 70, chapter 70, verse 70, the Bible says, He also chose David, meaning God, his servant, and took him from the seafolds. From the care of ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. There's two very important qualities there that we're not going to really get into this morning, integrity and, and skill. But look at how David gets to the position that he is in as, as chief shepherd of Israel. It says, he, meaning God, chose David. Whenever we serve the Lord in any capacity, it's important to understand that it is the mighty one, the almighty, who is calling us to be in that capacity. Now, he may use the church leader to call you, to, help, to come help out with the youth, but essentially, it should be a calling from God. See, the word of God says here, God chose David. God chose Paul. God chose Gideon. God chose Moses. God, throughout the scriptures, replete with, with people who've been called by God to serve him. Ministry is service. Leadership in ministry. We don't choose. God chooses. So that's the point. A calling means what you are doing, you are doing because God called you to do it. Again, he may use church people to encourage you, but it is God who's supposed to call you. One of the things that initially I dreaded when I was going to elementary school was choosing up sides to play ball. You know, you know have you ever experienced that? Yeah. Usually it's the two alpha boys that are the captains, and then they choose who they want on their team. And you, you just hope and pray that you're not last. But I got to the point where when I was being, when we were standing there ready to be chosen, there was a certain team I wanted to be on because they looked like they would win. <laughs> now, they had the best athletes, so for whatever reason. But the problem was, I had to be chosen. I couldn't choose. See, and that's what happens in the church. That's what happens in the economy of God. We don't just choose our ministry area, even though we may have a passion for it. We need to be called by God. And we need to have that calling affirmed. You, be, you should be able to say, yes, this is precisely what God wants me to do at this point in my life. I spent 10 years in seminary. I, I went the 10-year route. I'm supposed to get out, I think, in three but I was serving full-time at Evergreen, so I was taking like one class a quarter and doing like three to four classes during my sabbatical breaks, which I don't advise pastors to do. Um, so, uh, whenever, but whenever I went, which was, I wasn't there frequently, but the thing I enjoyed most about my time in seminary was playing flag football. And we chose, chose up teams, and we, I got to play flag football. So I got to meet a lot of people playing flag, co-ed flag football. And one of the things I would ask, whether I'd be in a small group or at my flag football, uh, with my flag football teams, I'd ask people, why are you in seminary? Why are you studying to go into full-time work, a lot of them? And you know what the answer they gave me? Almost to a person. It's because I love God and I want to serve him. So my response to them as gently as I possibly could give it was, you know something? Every believer is supposed to love God and serve him. But why are you here preparing for full-time ministry? Have you been called? And pastors and people in full-time work, if, if they aren't called, one of two things will happen. 
They'll either burn out and quit or they'll stay and be ineffective because calling is so essential. Well, how do you affirm your calling? What's the evidence that you have been called by God to serve and to lead? Like your elders and, and deacons, they're being called by God to serve here at Living Hope. First of all, there'll be fruits of the ministry. Paul's letter to, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about, about, about how God has blessed the ministry in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So when you are called by God, you will experience some fruit, some harvest in the course of your ministry. If you feel like you've been called to be an evangelist, you spend 20 years as an evangelist, no one comes to know Jesus, you probably should rethink your calling. Because there should be some sort of harvest, some sort of fruit. Secondly, there will be the affirmation of the saints. When Paul writes his letters to the church of Corinth, that's what, he's, that's what he's yearning for, the affirmation of the church of Corinth. Because they're challenging his apostleship. He wants, to be, he wants to make sure he's being affirmed by them as he teaches and corrects them. And so during the course of your ministry, the affirmation of the saints, the body of Christ here at Living Hope, will affirm you. Yeah, yeah. You're really doing a, such a wonderful job with the youth. You're doing an incredible job with the worship team. We really feel like you're lifting us up into the presence of God. Right, so you'll be affirmed. And thirdly, you'll have the peace of God. In, in Colossians, uh, the Bible talks about uh, Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The word uh, peace there is the same word that you would use for the word umpire. You know, in a baseball game, you have an umpire who arbitrates the game. The peace of God should arbitrate and give you an understanding that you are where you're supposed to be no matter what's going on there. It could be a real difficult time in your ministry, but you know you're supposed to be there. It's because the peace of Christ is with you. Now, there are three benefits of knowing that you are called. Three benefits. When you know you're called to be in a certain place, in a certain ministry, there's at least three benefits. Benefit number one, it will help sustain you during the tough times. It will help sustain you during difficult times. Two, it will give you assurance that God has a plan for your ministry. It doesn't put you someplace just to let you flounder. And thirdly, it will give you confidence that God will take care of you and your family as you serve. My first uh, five years at Evergreen, there was uh, four people, actually, who tried to oust me from the position. And they, thought that I, they felt like I was incompetent. I was not educated yet, for sure, but that I was incompetent. And it was a really tumultuous time as they tried to gather people to come against me at the next uh, congregational meeting to vote me out. All right? And it, it was very uncomfortable because these were leaders. And the one thing that got me through it all was I knew I was called. I wish I could give you like, the calling that how God got me at Evergreen, but that would take way too long. But he used things to the point where I knew for absolutely sure I was called to Evergreen. And that sustained me. That sustained, I knew my family would be okay. I, I, we would be okay because my calling was affirmed in my heart and soul. And so, affirm your calling. Wherever you're at, say, Lord, is this where you want me to be? Am I doing what you want me to do? Secondly, ministry becomes more manageable when our family comes before ministry. When our family comes before ministry. Now, here's a mandate for leaders, especially deacons and deaconesses, or deacons, deaconesses, and elders. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says this. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, 
how we take care of the church of God. 2 Timothy 3, speaking to deacons, that deacons be husbands of only one wife and be and good managers of their children and their own households. Now, these verses are directly to, uh, uh, written for elders and deacons. But remember, they are our examples. So we're supposed to be like them because they're supposed to be like Jesus. Now, what does it mean to manage your own household well? All right, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 4. He must be one who manages his own household well. See the, see the phrase, he must? It's imperative. It's not an option. We're supposed to manage our household well. No exceptions. If we are in ministry and if we especially are leaders, we're supposed to manage our household well. What does it mean to manage? The word manage literally means to stand before. You're standing before your family, your household. You're there for them. Secondarily, the word manages means to be concerned about or to give aid or care. And that's what we're supposed to do with our family as well as the church. And thirdly, the word manage means to busy oneself with or to be engaged in. So when God says you must manage your own household well, it means you need to be engaged with your family. You need to be there for your family as mom or dad. Be there for your family. Then Paul ends up by saying, how would he take care of the household of God? So you see what he's saying here? Unless you manage your household well, how can you manage the household of God? Therefore, if you are managing the household of God in any way, shape, or form, or in ministry, make sure you're managing your family well. So family comes before ministry. And my greatest fear when God called me into ministry was having PKs. You know what PKs are? Preacher's kids. I was a youth pastor for five years. And in that course of five years, I didn't meet one PK that was under my charge. That was normal. <laughs> I mean, I felt bad for them. One, one the pastor's son, oldest son, came to youth group one day and says, he wa- that he wanted us to nail him to the cross that was in the front of the church because he was, he was Jesus or he wanted to be like Jesus. Daughter was promiscuous. I mean, it just was not a good scene. And so when God called me into ministry, my biggest concern was that means my kids will be PKs. And I didn't want my kids to be the typical PK. And part of the reason why I, I love ministering with my daughters, but also when my daughters serve, you get a sense that they're in the spirit that they love Jesus. So God, the one prayer I had above all else was, Lord, allow my family to love you over the course of my ministry, that I don't blow it there and that I manage my household well. This is a paradigm shift for some Korean churches. This was a paradigm shift for Japanese churches, first and second generation. This was a paradigm shift for Chinese churches, first and generation. And this is a, this is a huge challenge in the Korean church. You're supposed to manage your household well. Family and faith first. Or first, faith and family first. Then ministry. And if you do the first two well, the last one, will go, your ministry will go well. I have a friend who, a uh, second grade teacher in elementary school, at least the time that he was in my uh, branch, or my, my ministry small group. And he came to our Bible study one night and said, you know what happened today? Uh, a kid burned up my car. I said, well, what? Yeah, he said, a fifth grader came, and he, t- and he set my car on fire and destroyed it. I said, well, what did he have against you? He said, oh, no, no, no. He says, he was going after his teacher's car and mistook my car for his teacher's car. <laughs> uh, 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 it was a case of mistaken car identity. And then he said, you know what else? 
It's PK. <laughs> a, a Korean pastor's son. And to be quite frank, I hope I don't offend anybody here. It didn't surprise me. Because <laughs> we as pastors sometimes neglect our family and they cry out for attention. Even if it means burning a teacher's car down. The Bible is very explicit here. Manage your household well. Once you receive uh, a calling, like an elder, a deacon, whatever it is, make sure in the course of your ministry you manage your household well. Three questions to ask yourself. I'm going to briefly go over this. Is my wife or husband more important than the church? Two, are my children more important than the church? And three, do I have regular family time and do I place family activities on my calendar? Now, back, back in the day, we didn't have digital devices. My wife and I are digital immigrants. We were not born into the digital, digital world. So back then, we had paper calendars. You ever seen a paper calendar, some of you young people? <laughs> All right. So there was a pastor and his wife went to go talk to a counselor. And they were, their wife said, you know, we're, we're second fiddle to the church. Everything for the church, not for us. Don't have enough time for us. So then the husband said, no, no, no. Look, I put family things into my calendar, my paper calendar. So she said to the counselor, take a look at his calendar. So he produced his calendar. Every church event was in ink. Every family event was in pencil. Why? Because you can erase it. It should be the other way around. So manage your household well. Thirdly, ministry becomes more manageable when we love Jesus. Now, normally, the second point would have been you, ministry is managed better when we have integrity. Integrity being your public life matches your private life. Your, your uh, character matches your, your reputation. All right? And um, I think that's the issue with pastors, is that when daddy preaches from the pulpit, does it coincide with the way daddy leads, lives at home? I think that is an incredibly important thing for pastors who preach and teach. That your public persona, your public image has got to meet your private persona and the way you are at home. That's integrity. Ministry becomes more manageable when we love Jesus the way we're supposed to. You know, the rabbinic way of teaching was to ask questions. It's one of the ways. So if you look at the Gospels, Jesus asks about two to 300 questions, depending on how you categorize it, maybe up to 100, because you know, he repeats some of the questions through the Gospel accounts. Like um, uh, he, uh, the, the, rich, the, rich, the rich man says uh, to Jesus, uh, good teacher, well, what am I to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Now, most of us would go, oh, perfect time. You pull out a track. This is what you do. What did Jesus say? Why do you call me good? He asks another question to get to the heart of the rich man. So Jesus uses this, this method. Now, so after I retired, I said, I'm going to do a study, my personal study on the questions of Jesus when he asked questions. That's a, a fascinating study. And I narrowed it down to like three questions that I think are really important. Now, they're all important, but these three in particular. The first question was this. This is in John chapter 1. Uh, oh, I got ahead of myself. Let me tell you the importance of questions. Let me share with you an illustration. When I was in junior college, 
uh, I had a guy that was in my class just came back from Vietnam. So when your soldiers came back, they had a chunk of money because they couldn't, you didn't spend much money in Vietnam. He had $17,000. And he asked the class, okay, I'm trying to decide to, I want to invest in one of two franchises. He narrowed it down. Uh, one was Chicken Delight, hang on, and the other was McDonald's. Now, according to Forbes, there's three questions you should ask before you buy a franchise. Does the, does the brand have a track record? Question number two, what do existing franchises have to say? And question number three, do you trust the founder and CEO of the company? So these are the two choices. Did you show them on the screen already? This was choice number one. Chicken Delight. How many of you heard of Chicken Delight? Don't call tonight. No, don't cook tonight. Call Chicken Delight. And it was a pretty major friend, but it wasn't run very well. His second choice was the Golden Arches. Back then, you could actually get a franchise for about 17 grand. 17 grand could buy a house. So that, tell, that gives you an idea of what kind of money we're talking about. You know which one he chose? Chicken Delight. Oh, I think about that every once in a while. He chose Chicken Delight. Okay, let me tell the first two questions. I'm not, not going to go into it, though. Question number one that Jesus asked in John chapter 1 is, what do you seek? He asked that of, his disciples, of the disciples. What do you seek? What he's trying to do is get to the heart of the disciples. Second question that I think is extremely important is found in Matthew 16. He says to the disciples, who do you say I am? This is the question you need to answer for the sake of salvation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm a sinner. I need you. I believe you rose from the grave. Come into my heart as Lord and Savior that you may be saved and live an abundant life. But it's the third question I want to dwell on for a few moments. Now, I'm going to ask you the third question and then only answer it in part because the only one who can answer this question is really you. All right? All right. Turn to John chapter 21. John 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. Now remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. I think that's... I think Jesus asked him three times because of the three denials. Also, the number three talk is, is a number that represents completeness and, and wholeness, which is what Jesus wanted in the life of Peter. And it's the last question he asks of Peter before he ascends. And last questions or last comments are always so vitally important. Now, what were the questions Jesus could have asked them? Why did you desert me? Why did you deny me? Why did you say you're going to stay with me and you didn't? That's probably what I would have asked but not Jesus. Do you love me? Before he gives them a ministry charge. Do you love me? You know, in a monumental moment in the life of both Peter and the church, because who did he give the keys to? Peter. Jesus asks, a he doesn't ask a doctrinal question. He doesn't ask a philosophical question. He doesn't ask a theological question, which I would have been more comfortable with. He asks a relational question. Do you love me? 
Well, the wording changes. We're not going to get into that this morning. Jim Elliott was one of five missionaries who, who were martyred in Ecuador. And those five men made a commitment that they would not use the guns that they took for, for, for game to kill any of the Aka Indians in Ecuador. How could such a man sacrifice so much? Now, Jim Elliott was an incredible writer. This is one of the things he wrote from his diary. I walk out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattails and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze and glory and give oneself to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I ever raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children that I may lead them to the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments, and smile into his eyes. Ah, then, not stars, no children shall matter, only himself. What do we learn from this writing? Jim Elliott was able to minister the way he did because he loved God so much. He had an incredible relationship with the God, with God Almighty, with Jesus, his only begotten son. And that's why he was able to do what he did or not do what most of us would have done. Do you love me? That's the question Jesus asks of each one of us. There's this movie called Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know if it's going to play here or not, a little clip. Well, hopefully it does. But there's a little scene here between Tevye and his wife. Right? And I think it's very pertinent to this. This is Do the scene. Do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? Well? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town. You're upset, you're worn out. Go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, go there. I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well. For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house. Given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Golda, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. So was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda, do you love? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well? You have to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> when I first saw that, I thought it was kind of weird. And then I put it in context with what Jesus says to Peter. Do you love me? Well, I cook for you. I clean for you. I had, my, I had your children. I've done all these things for you. But, but, but go there. Do you love me? What if Jesus were to ask you, do you love me? Well, I teach church school. I come to worship every Sunday. I've gone on mission trips for you. 
I give on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, but, but do you love me? Well, I'm a believer. I'm a child of yours. I was baptized. I take communion every first Sunday of the month. Yeah, yes, but do you love me? I'm a Christian. Yes, but do you love me? What would your answer be? There's two sisters in the Bible named Mary and Martha. Remember there's an account where Jesus comes and, and Martha's scurrying around doing all the things that are important. These are important things to do. But she's doing all the things that Asian Americans do. <laughs> Getting the food ready, making sure the place is clean. Everything's orderly. And what's his, her sister Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, just loving him and, and listening to what he has to say. Having a relationship with him while Martha's scurrying around. And Martha wants Jesus to rebuke Mary. Right? Help, tell my sister to help me. And what does Jesus say? Mary has chosen the better portion. The other things need to happen and will happen. But first and foremost, do you love Jesus?